Hey mama, you're listening to the Fit Mama podcast. I'm your host and fitness bestie, Sarah. I'm a prenatal and postpartum fitness specialist, certified Pilates instructor, certified yoga teacher, and most importantly, I'm a certified hot mess of a mother. I've got a toddler son and twin baby girl, so you can just imagine the noise levels in my home. But in this podcast, I'm excited because I'm spilling all of my best tips so that you can feel your absolute best and most confident on this crazy motherhood journey. So whether you're washing the dishes or loading up the minivan, I'm glad that you're here. Turn up the volume and get ready to take some notes because we are diving into all things physical, mental, emotional, and spiritual health. Hello and welcome to the Fit Mama podcast. If you saw the title, you already know, but we are diving today into the topic of insulin resistance or pre-diabetes. Don't tap away just yet. Many, many people struggle with this and don't even realize it. So today we're going to go into the signs, the symptoms, and what you can do about it if you think that this is you. So I am joined today by my lovely mother again. She was on the last podcast, but in case you didn't get to give that one a listen, would you mind giving yourself a quick introduction? Hi. I'm Valerie Kelly. I'm a nurse. I've been a nurse for over 40 years and uh, 27 of that directly in geriatric care of of people. And um, so I have a familial history of diabetes, very strong. And so this has been a topic I've been interested in and studying uh, earnestly for many years. So let's have a little intro on the topic then. What is insulin resistance? So insulin resistance is where the cells in the pancreas are still making insulin, and in fact, they may be making an abundance of insulin because it's taking more of that hormone to do its job. So your body is becoming resistant to the normal amount of insulin it would produce, and it requires your body to overproduce, which in turn wears out the cells that are doing that job. So in layman's terms, insulin resistance is when your body needs more insulin to do the same things that other people might be able to do with less. That's right. And that has consequences to the body. And what exactly does insulin even do? Well, insulin is a hormone. We say it unlocks the door to the cells to allow the glucose, which is what we eat, our our energy cells need that. Um, So it unlocks that door to allow the glucose into the cells so that you actually can burn your energy. You can actually have energy in your cells. Without it, you would die. And so we mentioned this is insulin resistance or pre-diabetes. So could you explain maybe what type 1 diabetes is, what type 2 is, what pre-diabetes is, just so we're all clear on the terminology? Sure. So type 1 diabetes is actually an autoimmune disease where the beta cells in the pancreas are attacked by the body and they cease to work. So those people aren't producing any insulin. And so they have to have insulin to survive. Um, So that's to set that aside. But what 60% of Americans are struggling with in insulin resistance is not that they aren't producing insulin, although over time it does diminish, At first, for many years, they are overproducing insulin because their body needs an abundance of insulin to do the same job. So that would make someone pre-diabetic? Pre-diabetic, and then it could lead, would lead to type 2 diabetes. So when does someone who is pre-diabetic cross over into type 2 diabetes? 
There's certain types of blood work that the doctor could do to ascertain what if you actually cross that border into full-on diabetes type 2. And they would typically do a hemoglobin A1C. And for most of us, they're going to do a fasting morning blood sugar to see where you are just at that range. So let's now bring it back into today's topic about insulin resistance. I appreciate you defining those terms because I think that things can get kind of confusing between type 1, type 2, what's pre-diabetic. We just know that we don't want any of it, ideally, right? But then how would someone know whether or not they have insulin resistance? You mentioned that 60% of Americans might be struggling with this, but for most people, I think this is a relatively new concept that they're hearing. I think most people don't realize that they're struggling with insulin resistance until it's nearly too late. That's right. Most people don't realize they have it until it has already crossed over into type 2 diabetes. And for years, they may have had very subtle symptoms or no symptoms and thought that they were okay because a spot check of their fasting glucose was all right. Pause. Uh, just a second for those of us who are not medical professionals. What is a spot test of fasting glucose? When you see the doctor and you haven't eaten the night before your blood test and he draws a level of glucose, your, they call it blood sugar, and it, it could be normal on that one day that you went because most of us, if we know we have a physical tomorrow, we're going to try to eat super healthy today at least and we are going to fast in your fasting window before physical could be a lot longer than it normally is in a normal day. So then someone might go in for a fasted blood work test and receive regular results but still have insulin resistance. Is that right? That is correct. So then what are some symptoms that you said, you know, they might be subtle, but what are the symptoms that might exist in someone who are, is struggling with insulin resistance? So an inability or a difficult time losing weight, you would also have an increased thirst, increased hunger, um, and that's the body's attempt to rid itself of that extra glucose that's floating around in the blood. So your hunger cues are increased, your cues to drink more are, and so you're up at night going to the bathroom a lot. Okay, and I'm sorry to interject with another question, but some of this sounds so backwards from what we typically think of when it comes to hunger cues, because what we normally think of is when your blood sugar levels are low, you receive the cue that you are hungry because your body needs some more sugar, needs some more energy, and that is our cue to eat. But now you've just mentioned that we can sometimes feel hungry as a response to high blood sugar levels. So then how does that work? If you already have an excess amount of energy in the body, why do we want to eat more? So your body is actually sending a signal that you need more fluid to dilute the sugar, but your brain will misinterpret that and say you need to eat more. And so it's a misinterpretation of a signal to get more fluid on board in a, an attempt to flush that sugar out. Okay, perfect. So it's all about diluting the blood sugar levels, but we're misinterpreting the signs. That about right? Yes. So then what other symptoms might exist for someone who is struggling with insulin resistance? You've mentioned so far inability or difficulty losing weight, excess hunger, excess thirst. What else? So because the glucose isn't getting into the cells very well, there's this loss of energy. So you feel tired, fatigued all the time. And so you don't feel like you have the energy to do anything. It may be all you can do just to get through the day. 
And that fatigue persists whether or not you eat? Yes, because the again, the glucose is floating around in your bloodstream. It's not getting into the cells as well as it should. Okay, so I think a lot of these symptoms might sound familiar to some of our listeners. Uh, I do have to ask, do some people struggle with insulin resistance because they are predisposed to the condition, meaning that their genetics have made them more likely to develop insulin resistance? Well, there's definitely a familial trait that goes along with it, and it has to do with the pancreas and the beta cells ability to keep doing its job just like some people have a proclivity toward heart trouble Um, but there's also nature and and nurture so the lifestyle choices sometimes run in families as well you know if your family always ate a certain way then you're likely to eat that certain way as well so in general yes if your family members struggle with this condition you are likely or more likely to also struggle with this condition. That's right. You're more likely to have a problem with it. And again, I just want to make the distinction here with that family history piece. Does it matter whether it's type 1 or type 2? Yes, type 1 actually has very little familial uh, unless your direct parent had it. So this type 2 diabetes slash insulin resistance piece that we're talking about really is determined by lifestyle more than anything. Absolutely, because now we see up to 60% are the estimates of people in America that have insulin resistance, and that certainly didn't used to be the case. So we know that our lifestyle choices have a greater effect on it than our genetics. So then let's talk about some of those lifestyle choices, because now I feel like we have really defined what this is, and some of you might be really feeling like you or someone you know struggles with that. So Let's talk nutrition first. What are some recommendations for someone who believes that they might be struggling with insulin resistance? Well, the first thing I would recommend is that they get their numbers, that they get with their doctor and decide, are they insulin resistant? Are there some tests we can run to check and see if you're having those symptoms we discussed? And so knowing how your body responds to the food that you're eating is really important because you, that's how you're going to be able to tell if you're making good choices for your body, and each body is somewhat different. And so with this piece of you know, talking with your doctor and getting your numbers, um, I think sometimes it's hard to advocate for ourselves if we don't have the terminology. So what are some specific things that someone could say to their doctor if they believe that they're struggling with insulin resistance in order to advocate for the proper testing to be done? Um, It would be worth your while to ask for a hemoglobin A1C. That's kind of the gold standard right now. There are some other tests on the horizon that they'll be doing with peptides, um, but also insulin levels are very helpful, uh, or a glucose tolerance test. Those tests, in general, are going to give you all the information you need to get you started. But then after that, you have to make a decision, how am I going to track this while I decide what to do about my lifestyle? I personally went to having a continuous glucose monitor. Um, I've done that for the past several months, and I have learned a lot about myself and the choices that I make and how my body responds to the different foods that I eat. And, you know, like you said, that is a very individual thing. Um, Now I want to talk in more generalities because, you know, ideally we all would be able to track our glucose levels in real time and, and have that 
amount of information, but uh, maybe for someone who does not have access to that or is unable to get that precise with tracking of their blood sugars, are there any general recommendations that we can make for the population? Sure. So one of the things that's really important is to have whole food, to have, you know, what we say real food. Avoid the highly processed foods. When we talk about highly processed, we're talking about all of the snacks that are going to be on your shelf for weeks and weeks and never go bad, and they have lots of sugar embedded in them and all the oses on the end of the the labels. That's Um, glucose, fructose, dextrose. That's what she means by the oses. Yes. And I, I do want to make it clear here, processed can mean a lot of different things. Anything that has been packaged at all or changed from its natural, you know, pick it off the vine state is considered processed. So if I bought a container of freshly chopped carrots, that would be considered processed. That's also why she's making that distinction of highly processed. We're talking about these things that are so removed from their natural state that They've been highly transformed, and in those processed foods, there are a lot of additives that are not conducive to our health. Um, they, they really decrease the nutrient density of those foods, and in place of nutrient density, they are uh, appealing to our taste buds. So um, besides you know, focusing on whole foods, what else can be done in terms of nutrition? So meal sequencing is one of the strategies that we use, and it's very helpful. And it's eating the protein portion, our lean protein, first. And then we would have our fruits and vegetables. And then we would have our complex carbohydrates. So in that order specifically is important. In that order, that's right. And then what about portion sizes? I mean, does it matter how much protein is on the plate, how much of the plate is taken up by fruits and veggies? Can you speak to that? It does matter, and so we like to look at the plate and a fourth of it being that lean source of protein and a half of it being your natural fruits and vegetables and then that other fourth being the carbohydrates, the complex carbohydrates, and I include the legumes in that portion. And Legumes are a very important part of the meal for a pre-diabetic. So when you're talking about complex carbohydrates, you're talking about whole grains. Whole grains, that's right. Okay. And so now you've mentioned proteins and then carbs in the uh, sense of fruits and vegetables and whole grains, but then what about fat? Do we just ignore this macronutrient? Well, you definitely want to have low fat, and saturated fat is not your friend, but of course all whole food has some fat in it. So we want to look at fat that we add to it as being a condiment to using it only what we need for our cooking processes um, or just a, you know, a small drizzle, but to be very careful with our fat because it's one of the problems with why the insulin can't do its job is that fat is blocking the door that the insulin needs to unlock. And so that's one of the reasons uh, that you see insulin resistance go up with BMI and then you get a vicious cycle. Okay, so I think that makes it pretty clear that macros definitely do matter. I guess my last question in terms of nutrition would be if the timing of meals matters. It does matter. You want to contain your eating to the daytime hours. 
And so you don't want to be late night snacking and uh, first thing in the morning just jump up and eat. Just contain it to the daytime hours and that's a generally a good strategy. And I think that this is an important port important point to underline here because with people who do not suffer with insulin resistance, one of the common fitness myths that we bust is that timing doesn't really matter in terms of your consumption of calories throughout the day. You know, over the course of a week and in different times of day, you can be eating and it's not going to matter as much. But if you are someone who does struggle with insulin resistance, the timing does in fact matter. So like most things in fitness, there is not a one size fits all solution. Um, but in this case, if you do think that you might be someone struggling with prediabetes insulin resistance, you do need to be paying attention to the timing of it and resisting that late night snacking. Whereas if you don't have this issue, it might not matter as much over the course of an entire day. That's right. You want to cycle your eating with your energy needs. So when you're going to sleep, your energy needs go down. Right. And you know, energy needs, uh, we've touched on it briefly already in this podcast are sometimes determined by hunger cues, but are sometimes not, especially with insulin resistance. Hunger cues can be a bit misleading. In fact, I know we've talked about this before that some people believe that they do not have insulin resistance because they are noticing that if they don't eat, their blood sugar dips down way too low. And so they feel like, yeah, my body responds just fine to insulin because I have these big drops in my blood sugar. And so what would you say to someone who thinks that because they struggle with low blood sugar, they don't have insulin resistance? There's something with prediabetes that is called reactive hypoglycemia, and that means that when you ate, you produced more insulin because that's what's happening, you're insulin resistant, and then your glucose goes too low. So the higher the peak, the lower the low, and then you'll have those symptoms of, oh my gosh, I've got to eat, I'm shaky, I'm sweaty, I just feel that, you know, that uh, cue that says I've got to eat. And you do if, it, if you get that way, but don't think that that means you're not insulin resistant. That is in fact a sign of insulin resistance is when you eat and then later on, maybe an hour or two later, you have that big crash. Right, and so I think here it's always important to remember that it's not that you are resistant to the production of insulin, you are resistant to it being used effectively in the body. And so for your body to actually use insulin, it needs a whole lot more of it. And so your production is not the issue at the present moment, um, but it can become an issue in the future. Uh, the present moment problem is that there is this excess amount of insulin in the body and your body is not able to use it. Um, so moving on from this nutrition piece, I do want to touch on any general recommendations that you might have for exercising. Yes, exercising is one of those strategies that we use that is so helpful because if you can exercise in the window around your meal, say 30 minutes before a meal, 30 minutes after a meal finishes, then you're going to be able to help your body use that glucose that you have just eaten in the natural way. It helps the, the insulin do its job. So as little as a 10 minute walk can give you the benefits that we see with lowering that spike. Um, and ideally you would be having a 30 minute steady state exercise 
uh, in a day. And if you can do that around a meal, especially your biggest meal of the day, then the better off you'll be. Now you mentioned that exercise can be 30 minutes before or 30 minutes after. And I'm assuming when you say 30 minutes before, you mean that it should end around 30 minutes before your next meal, correct? That's correct. And now how do we know whether we should be working out before or after or does it matter? It does matter in that most people, their glucose is low before they eat. So the safest thing is to do it after you eat, after you've got that in there. But if you exercise a little before the meal, it will help you burn the calories that you're going to eat. But you don't want to like exercise like crazy and then not eat right away. So really the key is to exercise when your blood glucose levels are high. Would that be We're going correct? to be high, yes. We're going to be high. Now, if my blood sugar was already low before my next meal, because I'm already inching towards the time that I should be eating, would that be a time where I should still exercise because there's a meal coming, or should I eat first, or what do you think? I would be very careful with that. Um, most people who are in the early stages will still tolerate that fine because your liver will start to put out more glucose, but... If your body's not sensitive yet to that reality of working out, you can get too low. Okay. And then I do want to touch again, you said something before about doing steady state cardio. So why would steady state cardio be the way to go? For anyone who's unfamiliar, steady state cardio is something that means that you are exerting uh, about the same level throughout the workout rather than these up and down, you know, big exertions followed by rest periods. It helps because steady state is going to burn the glucose from your body at a steady state. And so you're not going to have this massive swing. And it's like if you did some HIT exercise, then you might end up overburning and and it wouldn't burn the fuel in your body at a steady rate. And so you would have a problem probably with low too low. Right. So um, I do want to underline that the high intensity interval training is pretty dangerous here in the sense that it is in and of itself a swing type of exercise, right? There are these big exertions followed by rest periods. And a lot of us feel like when we are struggling with weight gain or inability to lose weight, that that's the way to go because those types of workouts feel the most difficult. But they are not really going to help you if this is a condition you are struggling with. It only exacerbates an issue and then can throw off your eating patterns later and the way that your body is processing glucose. So with a HIT workout, you really want to um, reserve that, I would say, until after this issue has been resolved. Uh, there's nothing wrong with steady state cardio. In fact, zone two cardio has been found to be some of the most beneficial cardio that you can do. We've talked about zone two before on this podcast, but as a gentle reminder, zone two cardio is when it is a bit challenging for you to talk, but not impossible. You should be able to hold a conversation, but if you were to go just a little bit harder, then you would not be able to speak. And so you want to find that sweet spot where it's challenging, but not impossible. That's that zone two. And that's where you want to kind of maintain your efforts throughout the workout so that you hit a steady state cardio. It does need to be a cardiovascular workout. So if you don't push yourself enough, then you're essentially not pushing the heart muscle that you don't get the cardio out of it. You're not pushing the heart, pushing the lungs to have to intake air. So 
with that steady state cardio, make sure that it's continual, but it's at a lower level than what you might be used to if you are used to going into the gym and just kind of trying to kill yourself for like 30 minutes. It's a lower tone of uh, work out there. Um, so continuing on from that, I think some people are maybe hearing this low intensity and that might be a bit discouraging for people who really want to see results fast because we think if there's lower intensity, then it must not be as effective. And then they might want to compensate by working out multiple times a day or pushing themselves for really, really long periods of time. So can you speak to maybe how many days a week someone should be working out and for how long? Sure. About six days a week, 30 minutes is ideal. You have to start from where you are. And so you should start with that 10 minutes at a time and build up to that. And ideal is that 30 minutes a day for six days a week. Perfect. And if you guys listen to the last podcast again, I want to recall and remind you that fitness is cumulative, right? So 10 minutes a day right now might sound to you like it's too easy, like it's not going to do anything. It's what's even the point, right? But 10 minutes a day over the course of a lifetime makes a huge difference, especially if the decision right now is between doing a 60 minute workout or nothing at all, right? This all or nothing mentality can be so harmful. So we need to focus on little by little taking those steps forward in the right direction. Um, And so if you are just starting out, like she said, 10 minutes a day is enough to see a difference. But the goal, again, you said was 30 minutes a day for six days a week. Perfect. So we've got that goal marker to look towards. Now, the last question that I'm going to have to ask you, because we're talking about exercise and I am a trainer, is what about strength training? Do we forget about it entirely because we're just doing this cardio? No, strength training is important for all of us. And I would be silly to not recommend everyone do some strength training. But in terms of insulin resistance, and only in terms of insulin resistance, it's not going to have the effect that the steady state cardio does. However, if a body is more lean, you are going to have more neat And that is going to help burn those calories all around the clock. Right. So body composition then definitely matters when it comes to insulin resistance. Absolutely. Okay. So you guys heard it from the expert here. (laughs) You do need to be doing your strength training. I know it's not as fun for a lot of you. I know I've got some cardio bunnies in the audience, but strength training is so important because like she said, a leaner body is more efficient in all senses of the word. Um, muscle also burns more at rest and your body will burn more calories when it is largely built of muscle compared to just fat. And so if we can strength train and build up muscle, even if that number on the scale ticks up a little bit, because it might with you retaining water as you strength train or with it ticking up as you know, you build on muscle, don't let that discourage you. We are thinking again, long-term and long-term, a leaner body is an ideal body. Um, so let's now kind of rein it in. How would someone know? Let's say they've implemented these lifestyle changes, but they weren't exactly sure that they had insulin resistance. They've just, they're just throwing some stuff at the wall to see if it makes any impact. What kind of improvements and symptoms should they be expecting to see? You would see less of the late night wakings. You would have more energy you start to see some weight loss. 
Um, you'd get greater satisfaction at your meal times. It would just uh, be a more pleasant time for you. You'd start to feel full quicker. Um, you wouldn't have the temptation to binge or be doing as much binging. Uh, you'd have less craving for sweets. Better vision is actually one of the signs. And is there any specific time frame where you might expect someone to notice improvements in symptoms? I mean, realistically, how long might it take the average person to see some improvement if they implement these lifestyle changes? If you're monitoring your blood sugar, you should see differences within just a, a week. If you're looking for changes in your body, in a month, you're going to start to see some changes. And I feel like in theory, when we hear this, we think, oh, a week, a month, that's no time at all. But I'm assuming that means that you need to be consistent with these lifestyle changes day after day. It's not like you can be a day on, a day off, and kind of loosey-goosey making these changes. It, it needs to be consistent. Is that right? It is right. And you're, you're going to reap the benefits again of doing the day in and day out work of doing it right and paying attention to your cues and what you're eating. I think the good news about all of these lifestyle changes is that they seem pretty doable. It's not like we're asking you to, you know, climb Mount Everest here. It's just paying some attention to the types of foods that you eat, the order in which you eat them, the portion sizes on your plate, and then your eating window. And then making sure that we get in some exercise, some steady state cardio, maybe just like a 30 minute walk a day around your meal times. And, and that's about it. I mean, obviously we have our ideals, right? But just to begin to get you on the path to feeling better, this all feels very doable. It, it is, it absolutely is. And you'll be amazed at how much better you'll feel. So for the mama who is listening to this podcast and feels like she might have insulin resistance, but she wants some more information on the topic, where would you recommend her to go? I would recommend, of course, consulting with their doctor, but also there's a book called Mastering Diabetes that I do recommend. Do you know the author of that book? Cyrus Kimbada is one of the authors. Okay, and we'll drop that in the notes of the podcast for you guys to take a look at it. Um, and if you have any additional questions, like she said, chat with your doctor. And um, I hope that you guys can get on the road to healing if this is something that you're struggling with. I really appreciate you coming on the podcast today and sharing your wealth of knowledge, both from working in the medical field and then working through this yourself, given your family history. Thank you so much. It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. And, you know, being her daughter, I am <laughs> taking this all in and looking at family history pretty closely. So thank you guys for coming along on this chat. Um, enjoy your coffee, reheat it if you need to, and I'll see you guys in the next one. Bye.